the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Today's episode features Dr. Julie Rack. Dr. Julie Rack is Professor and Henry Marshall Tory Chair in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta, Canada. Julie's awards include the Killam Annual Professorship, 2017 to 2018, and the Hogan Prize, 2017. Her books include False Summit, Gender in Mountaineering Nonfiction, 2021, Boom, Manufacturing Memoir for the Popular Market, 2013, and Negotiated Memory, Dukabor Autobiographical Discourse, 2004. She is the editor of the Identities volume of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Literary Theory, 2020, and the collection Autobiography in Canada, 2005. She has co-edited with Anna Paletti, Identity Technologies, Constructing the Self Online, 2014. With Kiwi Martin, she edited the reissue of Inuk author Minnie Audla Freeman's landmark memoir, Life Among the Halunat, 2014. With Jeremy Popkin, she edited a collection of Philip Lejeune's essays translated into English on Diary, 2009, and she co-edited Mountain Masculinity, The Writings of Nello Tex Vernon Wood, 1911-1938, 2008. With Bill Mullen, she edited a cluster of essays for Biography on the Idea of Academic Freedom, 2020, and with Hannah McGregor and Aaron Wunker, she edited the activist anthology Refuse, Can Lit in Ruins, 2018. Her latest editing project is the Rutledge Introduction to Autobiography with Sonia Boone, Laurie McNeil, and Candida Rifkind. Thank you so much, Dr. Julie Rack, for being with us today. It's a delight to have a chance to spend a little bit of time with you. Oh, it's a really the honor is mine, Shannon. I'm so glad to be here and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about. As am I. You know, I feel so very lucky that um, I was introduced by my wonderful colleague, Candida Rifkind, um, mm. to some of your work and also to you. And, you know, this year being in the middle of a pandemic, it was such a gift to get a chance to spend some time with you and to engage with some of your amazing, prolific work. And um, also just to, you know, see an amazing scholar and researcher who is so generous and generative and invested in mentorship. So you've really brought so much beauty into my life. I want to thank you for that. Oh, oh man. It's, it's like you can't see me furiously blushing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good. You know, it's um, uh, I think one of the best things about the job that I get to do is that I get I get to pay back a little bit what people have done for me. And one of the things about life writing as a field worldwide is how supportive people are. Mm. And, you know, people who study the self, it's amazing how they're not really very egotistical. <laughs> I've been taught really, really well. And it's, it's just a joy to be able to give back. And if I could help you, especially in a pandemic year, I'm very glad for it. Well, thank you so, so much. You know, while I was in those um, meetings that happened monthly, I got a sense of the landscape of life writing and oh, some of the different terms. Now, I wouldn't say that I've got them down. So I thought, you know, for listeners in the field of voice studies and pra practice-based voice theater making, um, we might be interested in hearing a bit about what the various terms are within the field of life writing so that we can sort of draw some parallels and also notice, hey, wait a second, some of the things we do in theater are quite like this. And the methods that we use are very similar um, yeah. to inspire some, um, you know, some additional creative research in our field. So I wondered if you could take us through some of the key uh, terms, please. 
Absolutely. So, and when I teach, I do a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Um, one of the reasons why I just did the recent project with my colleagues on um, Canadian autobiography is partly because of this kind of situation. It's really um, interesting, but also important to know what your terms are and mm-hmm. how we use them, right? Um, I also uh, was just at a great big conference. Um, that is run by the International Association of Autobiography Studies. And at this conference, I was in a session called Keywords. And we even mm. asked our audience to make their own keywords. And then we could talk about them as part of what mm. we did. So we're all about keywords <laughs> in life writing anyway. <laughs> I Definitely. appreciate you saying that. You know, uh, yeah. one of the books that you recommended, actually, I'm, I'm going to be trying to get my hands on. It's called Keywords, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of my favorite books I've ever read. Um, and it still, even though it was written such a long time ago by Raymond Williams, it continues to influence my pedagogy and also even my approach to research. So, you know, I was, I think keywords are generative, so it's really good to think about them this way. I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, no problem. So one of the things that we need to start with is what is life writing? Because that is a term that doesn't get used outside of the research environment. Um, if you saw life writing in the, you know, in like the, the world circulating, you'd never, you'd almost never see it. And, and a way you can see that is if you, for instance, you go on Amazon, if you wish, or you go to um, a physical bookstore, you won't see life writing as a category very often that's being used for how to classify something or understand something. Hmm. And there's some good reasons for that. So the field really is about personal nonfiction. So it's about mostly it's about stories and sometimes not even stories, but just representation. That's about real lives in some way. Okay. And it's about real lives and stories about lives. So Mm -hmm. we're not talking about fiction very much. Mm -hmm. The field started, well, really starts in the 1950s and 60s. And what it is, is it's called the study of autobiography. Okay, Mm -hmm. at first, and that is just the straight term autobiography. And when I tell my students how that works, that is a set of Greek words that was put together in the 18th century. And what they mean is auto, which is self, right? Like automobile is self-moving, right? So Uh it's like that. Bio is life. And graphe is the Greek word for writing. So Uh self-life writing, okay? Uh And you might think that those those terms are really self-evident, right? People have a self, you know, they just write about their lives. (laughs) So easy, right? (laughs) No one in the humanities ever goes in because we want to make things simple. We all go in because we want it to be complicated, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what you do when you start to study that is you start a lot of questions in the field began to be raised after the 1960s about different aspects of those, of that particular term. Like what is the self? Who gets to have a self? How do you make one? <laughs> is it mm-hmm. pre-existing? Were you born knowing who you were? And the immediate answer, of course, is no. You didn't. You weren't born knowing who you were. And then you can ask yourself about life. Like, what is a life? Who gets to have a life that they can tell? And, you know, there was a long feminist intervention in the field that said, Women weren't allowed to have lives the way men were. So what did they do to represent themselves? Mm-hmm. And so there's a long and way of talking about that. And then there's also the question of what is life like in a post-human world? What is it? Do animals have life stories? There are people, I have colleagues who work on that or, mm-hmm. or they work on um, what is life when we're talking about DNA? What does it mean to have a life? And then graphe is obviously, especially because you are in theater studies and drama, you're going to know a lot about the limits of a term like that. Not all stories are written down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we There was a critic from many years ago called Georges Gustorf, who actually was French, 
don't let his name fool you. And, uh, and he said that in places where there wasn't writing, the selves don't develop the same way. And in the intervening decades, people have really said, no, that's not right. So indigenous people, for instance, in Canada, what is now Canada, have always had ways of talk of doing personal stories, but they don't work in terms of writing all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, People can perform their life stories, they can make personal documentaries, they can things they do online with selfies can be Mm -hmm. can have those qualities. And so writing is not the only thing. Then there's the whole thing about biography, which is life writing. This is going to become confusing because that's a genre and that's where the story of someone's life is being written or performed or created by another person. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite different from autobiography because one of the obvious differences is autobiography, you can't record your own death right? You, you, you can't, you can imagine it, but you will be unable to talk about it in biography. You can do that because the person who's writing about the, uh, the other person or people can, can write is, is, can do something posthumous. So there's a, there's a very basic difference there, but early on in the field in about the 1980s, there was a growing awareness among people who were interested in studying these forms that autobiography and biography were related to each other. Sometimes someone tells a life story, not just about themselves, but about other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or sometimes the story of other people can turn into a story about yourself as well and your presence in that story. And so, mm-hmm. In the, in the late 1990s, a term developed that you will be unable to hear in the recording, which is auto slash biography. So that is a, it's a neologism, which is a word we use for words that we make up for a situation that aren't in use yet. And so as a neologism, <laughs> auto slash biography is, is a way of saying that we study both things, but we understand that they're different from each other and that they have relationships to each other potentially. Mm, okay. That so that's, so cool. yeah. And life writing became a term that researchers used to say that they studied both things so that we wouldn't have to keep going autobiography with the slash in it. <laughs> the other thing that it did the study of life writing really as a as a scholarly thing is really about all the ways that we study non-fictional personal stories so they can include other things other than formally published things so for example there are people who study autobiographical theater mm-hmm. right or there are people who study diaries which are records of the self but they don't work the way that other things do or letters so you'll have these different kinds of practices and as the digital interest in the digital turn has become much greater we have people who are interested in looking at all these kinds of new practices that are developing um, around how to represent the self lives interact with other lives and those don't always follow the path of the published work autobiographic mm-hmm. and there are people who study documentary and all this biopics and even biofiction like the idea that you or auto or autofiction the idea that you can have um, some elements in your story that are made up and some that are not and they're in critical tension with each other so we have a, we have um, today a lot of different kinds of terms to describe what those things are but they all connect to the study of life writing, even though we're not always studying writing. <laughs> so that just to make that even more complicated. So, so that's the starter part is to say, well, we have this relationship to, uh, to life, self life and writing. And then we criticize or critique or ask questions about or enlarge our idea of what those things are without really leaving the world of these are stories that are real on some level. Um, your autobiographer may not always tell the truth. <laughs> they, may, they may have quite a bit, but there's going to be something, some connection with the world, um, not in a purely fictional sense. So that is um, at least a starting point for those terms. 
where would you like to go from there? There's um, Smith and Watson, who Sidney Smith and Julie Watson, who were really important theorists for the field, wrote a book and published it quite a while ago now called Reading Autobiography, A Glide to Interpreting Life Narratives. And at the end of their second edition, they have over 60 different terms around oh, wow. life writing. And I would really rather not talk about all of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... Um... I think, let me go through my little notes here. You know, I had yeah. uh, kind of I'd gone through so many of your amazing publications, um, you know, your books. And I mean, the key, the key words, if I can use that, that sure. term, that Absolutely. stood out to me, were, were life writing. You know, I was trying to create a map for myself while I was hanging out with all of you um, amazing mm-hmm. scholars, um, autobiography, as well as you know, auto slash biography, um, yep. the idea of memoir, you know, um, oh, yes. within memoir, I had kind of pulled out the idea of testimony in memoir, genealogy oh, yes. in memoir. Um, and, you know, part of my interest, you know, is also as a person who's always been drawn to um, life writing, you know, I, mm. I kind of, uh, it's been my sort of hobby all my life on the side. Wow. Um and so, yeah, I've read and read and read. This is sort of my my favorite thing to read. Um, so it just felt so wonderful to come to hang out with you and your colleagues. Um, would you tell us a bit about how you came to life writing? What's what oh, sparked yeah. your imagination? <laughs> um, and then perhaps I'd like to, I really do want to kind of like look at how you've also, everything that you shared, you know, about story, you also later in one of your amazing articles um, called Life Writing and Auto Media, The Sims 3 Game as a Life Lab. Oh, yeah. I love <laughs> what you do in that article. Oh, boy, is that ever. That was such a joy to read. So Thanks. Oh, wow. I'm really glad. I wasn't sure what people would think of that, but I had a lot of fun writing it. I had a ball reading it. So thank you. Oh, great. So like you in that sense, I've been reading... Um, things that I would now say were life writing or life narratives. Sometimes that term gets used to emphasize stories that aren't always written. I've been interested in that since I was a kid. And and when I was 12 years old, I read the diary of Anne Frank and um, in the version that we had back then, because we were all reading the censored version, but we didn't know that. And, and that book really made a big impression on me because of course I was the same age she was. And uh, I'm from the era in the United States, which is where I was born, where the Holocaust was not taught in school. And uh, in the 1970s, which is when I was reading that book, um, there was still no public discussion about the Holocaust. Uh, It seems unbelievable today that there was nothing, but there really was nothing. There was, you know, you had people like Elie Wiesel and people like that who'd written things, but for, for kids... There was nothing. Um, So Anne Frank's diary was what there was to read um, that you could have access to. And it was um, a revelation to me that this, not only that this young girl, I really was impressed by her as a person. I remember that. But I also um, went, I snuck into the adult section of my small town library and I found this book called Anne Frank Remembered, which was about people who had survived the Holocaust who remembered what had happened to her. And that's a work of testimony, right? As you Mm. mentioned, um, because people are giving testimony, telling the truth about things that happened to Anne Frank and their memory of her. I shouldn't have read that book. It was for adults and there were atrocities in it. And as a young person, I was really affected by that because I didn't know that that such people could live, that there could be people who would just hurt other people this way. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it was the beginning of my awareness of um, the political world when I did that. So Mm -hmm. if we fast forward to many years later, (laughs) I went to um, Carleton university in Ottawa to do my master's degree in Canadian studies. So I got a scholarship to go there And it was partly because um, I was really interested in Canadian literature and I was interested in Canadian art. I had done um, a thesis on Emily Carr and Canadian art for my honors thesis. So I wanted to go and study those things. And that was partly because I was an immigrant. I had immigrated to Canada when I was 13, even though 
I am a white person and I'm American, so you can't really hear my immigrant self in the way that I'm talking to you right now because I have learned how to stop my accent. <laughs> so you can't hear it. So um, I was always really interested in what is this place I've ended up in? What is Canada about? Um, often I did not know the social codes that Canadians live with every day. I didn't really mm. understand them and often made mistakes. So I was really interested to kind of learn about this place. So I went to Ottawa to do that. Uh, when I got there, I had a course in what was called cultural studies. And it was, uh, it was taught by the great J.J. Healy or Jack Healy, who was one of the people who helped to bring an awareness of post-colonial theory to Canadian literary studies and world literature studies in Canada. Um, and yeah, he was a very, very smart, smart man. Um, he didn't know anything about cultural studies. <laughs> we didn't have cultural studies in Canada in like 1989. <laughs> we didn't have it. And so um, he just did whatever. And one of the things that we did, we, we did a bunch of things that were really unusual that really affected me. One was we read Louis Riel's journals, which turned out to be a really interesting thing to do. How cool. Yeah. He's the only person I've ever seen who ever just had us do that. And actually I learned a lot from that. Um, and then he taught us the work of Frederick Philip Grove, who is probably someone that you and your listeners have never heard of. And there is a reason for that. So Frederick Philip Grove is, or was rather, in the 1920s, Canada's most respected novelist. He, he wrote something like six books. He wrote a really strange book called Consider Her Ways, which is about ants, the Society of Ants. Um, and he also wrote all these prairie novels. Um, and he really saw himself as the person who could be the voice of immigration um, in Canada. The reason why was he had written a memoir called In Search of Myself, which was supposedly about his Swedish origins and how when he was on the Swedish steps, he he had this vision that he could he could sing the voices of the unsung the immigrant and then he migrates to the united states he works as a farmhand and then he comes to canada and he becomes this farmer writer and he marries and he has children okay so that all sounds fine doesn't it except that it never happened uh -huh. frederick, <laughs> right frederick philip grove was actually felix paul greve he was german and he had been married to somebody whose name was the Baroness von Ilse von Freitag or something like that. I'm not getting her name completely right because there's a lot of parts to it. Um, and he lived as sort of a dissolute bohemian writer intellectual who was a friend of Andre Gide's and Oscar Wilde's with all that that involves. Oh, wow. Okay, so he probably was living sort of a queer lifestyle in in europe like queer ish i don't know it's you know it's it's hard to tell but he was also married to this woman who was a bit of a libertine or whatever and he actually decided to abandon her so he did and he changed his name and he and he escaped to the united states where he did work as a farmer and then surfaced as frederick philip grove instead of felix paul greve and he married and had children and never told his family who he really was. Oh my so, gosh. Okay. So why am I interested in this? I was fascinated. I thought, how can someone fake their lives? And yeah. then they use their story as a way to fake their lives. Right. It was a yeah. really, I was really interested. Like at that point in the eighties, post-modernism, post-structuralism, these are important things. I was taught as an undergrad by Linda Hutchin. I was very fortunate to have been taught by her. She was a, she was a sessional lecturer getting paid peanuts, if you can believe that, where I went to school. And I knew a lot about post-structuralism from her. And I thought, how did the text create the life, right? So, mm -hmm. so I decided I wanted to find out. So I went to 
I went to Jack Healy and I said, I want you to be my supervisor. I really want to learn about this. And he just looks at me and he goes, no, you're not gonna. He said, no. What? Yeah. I was devastated. I went home. I was like, oh my God. Right? So I went back to him. I said, why did you say no? And he said, because I don't think I'm good enough to be your supervisor. I think you should get somebody who's a real expert on autobiography to work Aww. with you. And I said to him, okay, look, and I, and I got out the, I said, do you have like a calendar back in the day we had paper calendars, right? And, yeah. uh, and I opened it up and I opened it to the English department at Carleton. I said, is there anybody here who knows anything about with this? And he looked at it and he went, you're right. <laughs> there isn't any, <laughs> I'll do it. So he became my supervisor. He was a really, Aww. he was an eccentric man. Um, he had more books than I ever saw in my life. He didn't know anything about my subject area, but he always gave me really interesting things to read. How cool. And, uh, and so I wrote my thesis on um, art and autobiography. So I wrote it about Emily Carr and William Karelik, who is a Ukrainian Canadian artist. Um, and, and because both of them were serial autobiographers, um, but were very different in terms of how they did that. So that's what it was about. It wasn't really the best thesis in the world. I have to say, I almost didn't pass. <laughs> but I find that hard to believe. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> um, but I had a lot to learn at that point. But what I did do was, um, and I have written about this in an essay from that my students asked me to write about how did I end up doing life writing. And it was because... Mm -hmm. I had this, um, like at Carleton, there's a huge tower called Dunton Tower, and that's where all the humanities and social sciences are put. And, uh, and I was put into a big, like windowless room with all these desks in it. That's what they gave grad students to work in. And our library didn't have very many desks to work in. And this area was called the black hole because it was just awful. There was no air circulation and there was only one other guy in there who worked there all the time. And he had a bow tie. I remember him. And he um, was working on his communications MA and he was in year 10 or something. Like he had been there. Like, I don't even understand it, but he was there every day. He never finished anything. He was still there when I graduated. He was still there. So oh, I would go there and I would just, I thought, how am I going to learn about autobiography so that I can work on this? Because there wasn't very much scholarship in Canada. There was almost nothing um, about this topic. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I just thought, okay, I'm just going to read everything. <laughs> so I, I did this. Great strategy. Uh, it's terrible. I, I would just tell people don't do that. But I did it. I, I took out every single book on autobiography that was written in English. And I read all of them in that room that I could. And I read all this uh, ancient work by these people called the new model theorists. Like they, they, they sound like a rock band from the 80s, don't they? New model. Theorists. Yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, they were phenomenologists who were interested in studying life the life part of life writing mm. and uh, and I read a lot of other stuff too I you know you name it I read it and I am really grateful that I did that now because I have yeah. a lot of background and I I could write about a lot of the work I've done since has been trying to reconcile or critically engage with that early work and say well what can we learn from it and so I'm really glad I did that but that's how I did it um, I just, <laughs> I read everything I possibly could, but unfortunately it means as a master's student, I really wrote a terrible thesis because I couldn't reconcile everything I learned with what I was studying. Right. And I couldn't, I didn't really have the ability to make it all go together properly. Um, so I got, uh, I did graduate, but you know, I was like, Oh man, I hated that. And then when I came back to do my PhD about, I don't know, three years later or something like that, I came back and I thought, I still really love working on that stuff. And I was really interested in Russian things. And the reason why was um, in the intervening years, I had been a secretary working for the sociology department of McMaster University. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had done my, I had done my, uh, MA, uh, my BA there. And it was an interesting job working as a secretary in a sociology department. 
but it was also intellectually not very stimulating because um, most of the people who were professors there assumed that secretaries were stupid, oh. and, you know, and they would pronounce words really slowly just to make sure that I understood and stuff like that. Oh. It was pretty bad. And so my friend Olga, who was a Belarusian, hmm. um, got, you know, and, and that was around the time that um, the, the Berlin Wall fell and, you know, and the Soviet Union oh. stopped existing. And so she wanted to learn Russian, which was the language of her new nation that she was from. And she said, hey, Julie, do you want to go do this? Because I had done a course on Soviet literature uh, with a really good professor years ago. And I said, yes, I did. So I went and did Russian on my lunch hours with Olga. And I really loved it. How cool. Yeah, it was really a fun thing to do. It was it was it was pretty hilarious. It was my teacher was quite funny. And uh, I learned a lot from doing that. So uh, when I went back to school, I wanted to study, I wanted to put together Russian things and, and life writing, but I didn't know how to do it. And I went to my former professor, Nina Kolesnikov, and I said to her, I wanted to do this. And she said, oh, I don't know. My husband is married to a duhobor. Why don't you, you know, here's a book, read this, see what you can find. And I became pretty interested in these people. Mm. and and their life which and their weird journey through the canadian state canada's first terrorists so they were called they were nude protesters i asked one of them once why do you think you did naked protesting and they said because when you're a pacifist it's really really good no one will ever be nude back at you what can (laughs) they do to you and you know that's not wrong like there's nothing worse than a bunch of middle-aged big naked ladies to make people run away in canada it really works they were kind of right. So I ended up like studying them and the kind of autobiography they wrote. And it really changed what I did. It changed my life really. And that's how I became interested in life writing this weird path that I had. So there you go. I didn't have any professors who knew about it. I was not in any, I'd never taken a course. There was nothing in my background to say that I was going to do this. So that's what happened. <laughs> that is fascinating. And oh. would you say then, Julie, that you pioneered the field in Canada through mm. scholarship? And I don't think so. I um, The real pioneers were, um, there was uh, a couple of people. One of them was Susanna Egan at UBC, who um, has retired now. Another one was... Um, Oh, there were a couple of others, but Marlena Kadar, who, um, you know, has, is now retired, um, was somebody who was really important, uh, for me for the field. And I almost did my PhD with her, but York university lost my application. And I thought, uh, I'm not going to go, (laughs) they lost it. So I thought, forget it. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to McMaster and I'm going to work with Lorraine York. And that turned out to be a really good decision, but um, she was really, really important for the field. She she created some of the first theoretical work for it. And there was another person called Shirley Newman, who was um, the person who made the link between Canadian work on autobiography and feminist theoretical work. Sorry mm. about that. Feminist theoretical work, which was international. And uh, so Shirley Newman and Susanna Egan and Marlena Kadar together were, were the three people who really made those links. And all, you know, I would, I would definitely say that Shirley and Marlene were um, feminists. They were all different from each other, though. Like Susanna was really interested in rhetoric and, you know, wrote a lot of stuff about rhetoric. She wrote a lot about she wrote in a book called mirror talk, how identity works in rhetoric. So she was quite different. Um, Shirley Newman was really interested in feminist experimental writing and wrote a lot about that uh, in French and in English. Uh, And because at that time there was a real interest in Canada with uh, feminist connections, she was a big influence on other people who became big in the field. Like Smarl Camborelli is a good example of someone mm. who was influenced by her. Um, yeah. And then Marlene really, I think um, she's the person who popularized the term life writing. Oh, wow. So, as a feminist critical reading practice that you use to read unlikely documents. And she's wow. written some of the smartest stuff in the field on this topic 
a few years ago, I got to give a talk where I talked about the importance of her work. And that was a real career highlight for me because I got to introduce her work to a new generation of people who didn't know what she'd done. She was also one of the first people to write about multiculturalism and life writing. And, um, along with some other people, she was, she was very aware of, um, justice issues and life writing in particular. And so, uh, she was really important for the field around that. Um, she wrote a really important essay on the idea of the trace in autobiographical writing. When you try to do research and the life story is missing, she was particularly good at writing about, um, the, influence uh, and the experiences of people who would be understood as Roma or gypsies, I would Mm -hmm. use Roma, um, who were all disappeared during the Holocaust. And there's not a lot of records for them. So how do you tell that story? Mm -hmm. And and what is your ethical obligation when you do that? Her work's Mm -hmm. really significant for those of us who are interested in those issues. So, um, and in that sense, she's more of a cultural studies practitioner and a lot less of a literary scholar, right? Because she used Mm -hmm. feminist history and other ways of understanding archives um, very differently from the way other people did. So I would not say that I was a pioneer in the field, but I'm definitely part of the second generation of critics who are interested in those same issues. So I would say um, the work that I did was heavily influenced by them. Uh, but um, I began to do, I actually did not do feminist work when I started because there was so much that was so good. I only did that work later. <laughs> I just thought, we'll, we'll just start with that as a given. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And I worked on very, very different kinds of things, but I really see myself as following in uh, Marlena Kadar's footsteps really more than anything else. We will uh, definitely link to all of this and uh, link to some of their works for anybody that's listening and interested in reading more. I'd be honored Um, by that because I think that they did things that were really important. Even if we wouldn't do the work they would do today, I think it's really important to know who went before you and with you. I agree, Julie. I really do. What should we talk about now? There's so many possibilities. Um, You know, I have these like little notes that I wrote, but you know, I'm surrounded by some of your books too. So perhaps I'll just, you know, look to one of them. Um, And it is uh, essentially a book that you helped to restore and republish a landmark Mm -hmm. memoir by an Inuit writer, Minnie Audla Freeman. And the memoir is about her experiences in the Arctic where she grew up and about culture shock when she became one of the first Inuit translators to live in the Canadian South. And without her permission, copies of the 1978 version of the book had been stored in the basement of the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs, and many books had been treated in the same way. And so there is an article um, that appeared in Canadian Literature in 2015. It's called From Halunat to James Bay, an interview with Amy Adla Freeman, which you co-wrote with Kiwi Martin and Norma Dunning. And I, I really loved reading um, Minnie's writing and the book. And also I just was so delighted in the afterward. Um, mm. And I just thought her book was so beautiful, evocative, exquisite. And I loved having a window into the editorial process after. Can you uh, speak a little to a little bit of what you share in that article from 2015 about how Minnie still had that original type, typescript um, and just take the listeners perhaps through a bit of an overview of what transpired and then how you and your team helped with the restoration. I'm absolutely happy to tell that story. And, and that interview actually took place at my kitchen, in my dining room table. So we were all sitting around that. And so it always reminds me of that. Okay. So um, what I always say when I start out about this stuff is that I'm not an expert on Inuit writing. Um, you know, and anything that I've learned, I've been taught. So it's, um, I am a life writing expert, right? So Mm -hmm. back when I was doing my PhD in, uh, at McMaster University, 
um, I had to do something called a comprehensive examination. And so to do that, you had to read a list of books that would help you have, you know, so-called mastery of the field, you know, in some way. And mm-hmm. I put Life from on the Haunat, the original version of it, the 1978 version on there, on the list. Um, and I put it there because I had read an article by someone who had written about it. I'd never seen the book. So I read the book and I was blown away by how good it was. It was mm-hmm. one of the, my favorite things. And also one of uh, Minnie's daughters actually was going to school with me. And so I was able to talk with her a little bit about this book. And um, for those who have not, who haven't seen the story yet, and I would encourage anyone listening, if you're interested to go read this, it's an outstanding book uh, in so many ways. Um, one of the things that makes Minnie's story different from other women in her generation was that her mother died when she was very young. And so she was raised by her grandmother, one of her grandfathers and her dad was around, but he often had to leave to go hunting he and live on the land. So he, she would see him, but not all the time. And then at one point she was taken forcibly and put into a residential day school, but she was forced to live there all the time. And it's, it's a very affecting and sad story about that. Although it wasn't all negative for Minnie, a lot of it was. Uh, and, uh, you know, she made what she could of the experience is what I would say. So I was able to ask her daughter, I said, like, she just, does she under, you know, there were issues in there, like she got her period and she didn't know what to do. And I figured if her mother had been there, she would know what to do. So I asked her daughter about that. And she said, yeah, that is what happened. So that book really stuck with me. When I became a professor, I wanted to teach it and there was no way to do it. I had to teach it from photocopies the one time I taught it. And I really thought that was wrong. Um, because that would mean that Minnie would not make any money from it. Mm-hmm. I had heard that Minnie lived in Edmonton, which is where I work, but mm-hmm. I did not want to just go call her up because then I'm just like random white lady coming to see her. You know, <laughs> I knew that I had to, if I was going to do something like that, I would need her permission. And I, and I didn't know the protocol to be introduced to her. And we had a, Uh, a colleague of mine was hired. She was a junior colleague. She was a new professor and her name is Kiwi Martin and Kiwi had done her PhD on Inuit literature. And uh, so one day I had coffee with Kiwi and I said, Kiwi, I would really like to find Minnie and republish that book. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Okay. But as I have learned as a non-indigenous person, who works sometimes with indigenous people, you had better be prepared for some kind of roller coaster ride. Nothing is ever going to turn out the way you think. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so I said to I said to Kiwi, what do you think? Like, do you know how to do protocol? Like, do you think we should do something like that? And she said, Oh, I'd love to do something like that because she had written about this book as well. Mm. So she was able to go and find Minnie and Minnie agreed to talk to us, which was, I learned later unusual because she had had a lot of people come to try to tell her, you know, we want to redo your book. And she said no to all of them. Wow. Yeah. And so we're sitting in her living room, right. And we're talking to her about this and she's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then she's like, Oh, I have the original manuscript right here. Hang on. And we were like, (laughs) Because we didn't know, because the publisher was out of business, and we, we were like, what? And then she finds it, like this typescript, and she gives it to us. And I'm like, what the? And I'm like, you know, and, and we're both looking at each other like, we can't believe this. And we're like, can we look at this and then come back to you and see what to do? And she goes, sure, right? So we start reading, and there's no connection in many cases between what is on the page and what was published. Oh, my. And, And I'm like, Kiwi, what are we going to do? Like, we're looking at each other, reading this stuff going, oh, my God, it's not the same because because Minnie had given us this thing and said, oh, it's 300 pages. And we were like, no, it's not. Your book's only like 250. Right. Mm. 
well, that's because not one thing the same, like, like, and, and so we started to work on this and realize that this isn't just a normal reprint. I remember Kiwi was expecting her, her son, right? Um, you know, she didn't know it was her son yet, but she was pregnant. And she was like, oh, no problem. We can get this done and I'll have my baby afterwards. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Two years later, we're still working. So we we talked a lot about how to do this in what Cree people in my region call a good way. And that mm-hmm. means a lot of things, a good way. But one it mean, one thing it means is respect. And another it means working with, not over. Mm-hmm. So Minnie had had this experience where she had written something and she had published it. And she'd done this because her husband was a famous anthropologist. His name is Milton Freeman. And uh, he had encouraged her to do that. Right. And publish it, Mm -hmm. which is how she managed to do it. But she had no understanding about the publishing process and it is the 1970s, you know, so -hmm. the publisher tried the best they could, but I think, in the end, they, they looked and thought, we can make this story more interesting and exciting. And they and they did all sorts of things to it, including changing all the order she had, changing her mm-hmm. wording. Like, they did a lot to it. that, And she had not seen it. Like, we said to her, did anybody go over this with you? And she said, no. No. Oh, wow. She said that they sent it. They just did this stuff. It turned out later that there had been some consultation with her about terms in Inuktitut, which is her language, but there had, there was not any consultation with her about editing. We have yet to ever find the editor copy. There's nothing in archives. We can't find Uh. it. We don't know what happened to it. I even got to talk to the publisher, Mel Hertig, before he died, Uh. very famous person. And he said he couldn't remember. Uh. He was in his eighties and he couldn't remember anything. So uh, it had been a long time ago for him. So as a result, we just had to go with what we had. So we consulted with Minnie a lot, like so much that she got sick of us asking things. And she said, I trust you. Would you stop bothering me with this? <laughs> we're like, okay. She's like, you, basically you, you white ladies, you bore me. Stop it. I have things to do. And we were like, okay. So when we were interviewing her for the afterward, because one of the things Minnie said to us was, is it going to be short and is it going to be at the end? And then we were like, yeah. And she goes, okay, then I'll do it. Cause like, no one's going to read that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were like, okay. So anyway, we did this interview with her for the front so that her voice was the important thing and how she wanted to tell things. And that's when she told that story about the basement and that she had been on tour for the book and you know, she'd had friends, she had worked in the government and she had friends come up to her and say, we can't find this book anywhere. And um, one of her friends said, that's because these copies have all been bought and stuck in the basement of native and Northern affairs. And she had worked there. And so we promised Minnie at the time, she was really angry about it when she'd found out. And she was so upset that it was one of the reasons why she never published anything else because she felt to her, it was like the government was was trying to tell her not to do something. And she thought, she didn't really know why it had happened, I think. So she told a lot of different ideas to us about what could have happened. Like maybe it was because she talked about residential schools, but she later said she should have talked more about residential schools than she did. She said she regretted that, that she didn't mm. tell the full story. But she said back then, like, we were all traumatized and we couldn't tell it. That's what she told us. So, and she said it was only when she met other people and when she was a prison worker who told her that she wasn't healed from that, that she realized she should have told it. So Mm. she, she didn't really do anything about this, but we, we told her we'd try to find out, but we were not able to find anything out in time to publish that, you know, for that book to come out. So that book is really remastered. Like it is, you know, we worked with, um, there's an, I know, writer, Norma Dunning, who also was a grad student at the time who worked on the book with us. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not do any major editing work, but she did do some work on the afterward. So that's what, that's why she's there as that in the book. And uh, so we all worked together on that. And even the cover, um, we had said to her, 
what do you want to do about the cover? And she's like, I don't like that cover. It makes me look drunk, all those buildings leaning all over the place, the original cover. So uh-huh. we found a, a work by uh, Inok artist who's really good and, you know, sort of had a similar idea to the cover, but it was done by an Inok person. And um, Minnie really liked it. So that was our big thing. Did Minnie say it was okay, we would do it. So that's why it looks like that. But even her name had been misspelled. That is the name on her driver's license, but that is not her name. M-I-N-N-I-E is, is an anglicization of her name. Her name is M-I-N-I, and it means gentle rain in Inuktitut. So even her name had been changed. Like, every, you know, like everything got changed. And we also put photographs in the book because that was important to her too. So you could see some of the people that she talks about. Mm-hmm. And that was really important to her that we that we put those things in and and that you could have pictures as well so um that's that's the story of that book really how that happened and uh i'm very proud of that book um the thing i'm most proud of is that we did something Minnie wanted us to do and um despite a lot of odds that book came out the way she wanted it to be and the structure is how she wants it so if you open that book in the middle it'll fall to page 100 that mm. literally is the section where she says, I am in the middle between two cultures. That's on purpose. Oh, right? I'm doing that right now, actually. Yeah, it'll probably fall to there. Yeah. It should anyway. And I mean, you know, because the structure had been changed, that, that way of telling a story, Minnie lived on the land, right? She's, mm-hmm. she's one of the generation that not only knew how to do that, but also knew um things about the south and it's really important when you read the book to realize that the whole story isn't actually about contact life among the helenot isn't her original title she her original title should have been life in james bay or something she doesn't even want that title Mm -hmm. because i think for her the contact stories are fine but they're not the whole story to her and the whole story is is the whole is her former life also living Mm -hmm in the North and the South together. I don't think she understands those things separately. In fact, I'm pretty sure she doesn't. So it's, uh, it was really important to her to have both things represented. And I, you know, we asked her later, like, what do you think? Do you think it was good the, the way that it worked? And she said, yeah, I like this book the way it is. I think I'm okay with this. So that to me is the best thing about what we did. And people can see that story the way it should be. We tried to get it, um, reissued for to win the Governor General's Award for Nonfiction to be considered, but it had been considered before, and so we weren't able to do that, even though the Aww. whole thing had been rewritten. And I really believe that book is good enough to have won, and, and I'm really I sad agree. that it couldn't compete with others, but who I'm sure are deserving. But um, that's the one thing I regret is that she couldn't win the Governor General's Award Aww. for it or, or be shortlisted because I think it. It's worth it. It's I think it's a work of genius. So and it's also yeah, and it's also very funny. So Mm -hmm. there's there's parts where you know the part where she goes to the movies and it's like the scariest thing she ever saw in her whole life. And and she you know, and then it turns out the movie's called Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) And I said to her, What you know, what do you mean? That's you know that's really funny, right? And she said, Oh yes, but I saw a lot of other movies since then. (laughs) it was really you know she can be really funny or like talking about like how do you understand machines and she basically understands them like they're animals so is that Mm -hmm. animal big enough to hurt you can you control it what's your relationship Mm -hmm. to it so like Mm -hmm. she sees a printing press and she sees a garbage truck and she realizes that they can tell her the story of how things are like what happens to your garbage or how do you make a newspaper? But it also, they're like, they're alive. And I asked her about this. I said, Minnie, are they alive? Like, what are they? And she goes, oh, yes, but everything is alive. Mm-hmm. Right? And she said, like, rocks are alive. And I said, okay. And she has told me a lot about that at different times, because I think she knows that I'm a white person. I'm a little slow. So it takes a while <laughs> for me to understand. So she has to tell me more than once. But her point is, everything is in relation to everything. So when you mm-hmm. go to a new place, like you go to Ottawa, which is what she did, you have to learn what relation you are to everything. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So whether it's her getting caught in the revolving door because <laughs> she's mm-hmm. never seen one or going into a car and thinking, how does it run? Like, how does that, how does it know where to go? Um, she helps us, all of us see things the way that as if for the first time. And I think that's what oh, yes. every good work does. So um, I'm really, yeah, I went on and on about it, but I, I really like that book a lot. And I'm very I honored too. that I got to be part of um, it coming back into the world. And I hope a lot of other people read it. Thank you so much for speaking to your um, engagement with that work. I, I really yeah. enjoyed watching a little YouTube video um, that was an APTN interview oh, um, yes. with Minnie and you were seated next to her. That was delightful after having read the book and read oh, some articles. God. I thought, what's on YouTube? I want to see if there's oh, any God. interviews. And You know, it's really funny about that. There was such a huge, like I went to Winnipeg with Minnie to do interviews to promote the book because the University mm. of Manitoba Press published it through the mm-hmm. First Nations uh, First Tech series run by Warren Carew. And they've been just terrific the whole time. So I went with Minnie because Minnie is pretty deaf, right? Like she, you know, her hearing aids don't work that well. She's an older person. And so I went with her to Winnipeg to help her out, you know. And we get to the set and it's been pouring rain that day. It was it was raining. So we were soaked. I mean, really. And I'm wearing this garbagey hoodie that I wore on the plane. And then suddenly, you know, they're saying on APTN, oh, you should come on TV. And I was like, what? (laughs) I'm like, no. And they were like, oh, no, you have to come. (laughs) So suddenly I'm on TV. I'm soaking wet and I'm wearing this crappy hoodie. None, none of that was perceptible on my end. You guys no, looked amazing and Minnie not such, soaked, yeah. you know. Oh, Minnie and I had a real laugh about it. We're looking. She goes, I'm not ready. She said, too bad, Minnie. We're going. <laughs> so anyway, it was really, that was fun. So I'm, I haven't seen it since then. So that's a lot of fun. Oh, thank you for sharing that too. Um, <laughs> is it okay, Julie, if I ask just one more question as oh, our sure. time draws to a yeah, close? Yeah. Sure. here. And um, it is about memoir. I, I wanted yes. to ask a little bit about this. You know, I've been thinking a lot about memoir. I've been mm. reading a lot of memoirs. Um, and, you know, just what you said earlier about the prison worker speaking to Minnie about how, you know, she should have told her story that um, that would have, you know, offered her some healing. Um, in mm-hmm. your book, False Summit, Gender oh, and yeah. Mountaineering Nonfiction, 2021, you know, you mentioned that memoirs work on the level of representation to construct rather than describe experience. And I wonder mm. if you can speak to that as our sort of final topic. Yeah. What what does that mean in terms of rather than describing something that's happened, we're actually bringing it into existence or we're, we're using an art artistic practice to create um and construct our identities. Yeah, if I'm on wow. the right track with that thinking, please. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and really you ask all my favorite questions. So that's so much fun. <laughs> I love talking about this. Um, it One of the things that is um, interesting to me about experience and identity. Um, I really do follow the earlier work of Joan Scott on this. She wrote a really well-known essay called on experience Um, which to some extent has never been equaled. Like, I think we could do more work on this for sure, building on what she did. But what she says um, in the middle of that essay is experience is an interpretation and is always already in need of an interpretation. Mm. And what that means is experience isn't just something that everybody has that is not reflective, you know? So Uh it's not like you just... And you'll see this a lot, though, like, for instance, in the current political environment we live in, appeals to experience are often used as a way to say something's just unimpeachably true. Like, mm-hmm. that's my experience. Or it's a way of saying, I don't want to learn about that because my experience is this. Like, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of that. And the truth of it is, experience is a story or it is a narrative. It's a way of um making something like who are you that experienced this how did experience make you who you are and if Mm -hmm. you're going to tell a story like that you know how are you gonna how are you gonna frame it because the way you frame it will 
construct who you are, make who you are, make something that wasn't there before. And this is especially true for genres that deal in memory work. And memoir Mm -hmm. is one of those. So um, memoir is uh, an old genre, right? I've written quite a lot about that elsewhere. Um, It's actually much older than autobiography as a term, and it comes from ancient Greece. And it's connected to meme or memory. Or, and that's where we get memo, memorandum, the idea of writing things down so you don't forget them, right? Mm-hmm. And memory is a muse too, someone that you back then would appeal to to help you understand something and recall something to your mind. So, so memoir was a way of telling a story so you'd remember. And uh, that is something that has persisted. But if that's true, memory can all sorts of things it can be influenced by the way your body works it can be influenced by what other people tell you it can be influenced by the way of telling a story that you have learned as the only way (laughs) and Mm -hmm. if you are if you have an identity that is not um a dominant one how do you bring your story into being how what role does your experience play so that's why experience is an interpretation of events. It's, it's actually already a filtering of events. It's not just events. And it's Mm -hmm. also something that needs to be made obvious. It needs to be brought into the foreground. And we think who has that experience? What does that experience mean? How does that person use it? To what uses is it put? Um, You know, what, you know, what happened is a complex question. And so I think, that's really where we need to think that through. So I know that the question was really about false summit. And so one of the things that memoirs do in the case of mountaineering is they do more than one thing. Sometimes people tell their stories for celebrity reasons, right? They might want to have a career, right? Um, Where they're in the public eye and their story assists with that. But in the case of mountaineering when there are controversies or accidents memoir is also a way to testify to what happened especially if someone Mm -hmm. died or was injured and so it can be a way of relating what the events were and then analyzing what they were and that's very important and it's ethically important especially because i discovered that some very well-known accounts of things that happened on Mount Everest, for instance, Chomolungma, um, were not actually what other people's memoirs said. And so this is a way of sifting evidence, right? Mm. And being able to understand more fully what happened and what and where there is bias in accounts. So that experience mm-hmm. isn't just straightforward, right? It bends around and it, it's influenced by things. And so being able to read for that can really help us assess what happened and even show respect to the dead the way Mm. that it should be shown, as opposed Mm -hmm. to what actually happened in some cases on Mount Everest. So uh, so that's that's why I think that it's really important to assess experience, identity and storytelling, almost like a a triangle, put them together and, and think of them all at once and hold them together. Um, because that's that's the sensitive way to read and interpret, I think. I really, really am so riveted by everything that you've shared today. Um, I want to thank you. Um, I'm going to close with a quote. Um, each and every oh, one gosh. of these interviews is sort of um, uh, tapping back to my uh, lifelong love of quotes. Um, and so I'll just, uh, you know, pull a quote that you have here that says, not everybody who climbs a mountain and writes about it wants to conquer the mountain, but it's the conquering Mm -hmm. discourse that becomes so important. And it's the voice that screams the loudest. And one of the things that I think scholars can do is show how other voices matter. And I just wanna thank you for all the work you're doing to highlight so many voices through the amazing scholarship and artistic work that you're doing, the editing, and also your generativity and generosity with scholars in other disciplines like myself. So thank you so, so much. And, thank um, you so much. And and so I return that to you and say that it's time that we hear your voice as you talk through and think through for your own discipline, what life stories mean. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say as well, because now it's your turn, isn't it? 
well, you know, you saying that got me a little nervous. So (laughs) (laughs) I will work on um, nervous system regulation first and foremost. Then I think, yeah. And I'm going to move on to uh, some of that work, I think. Yeah, uh, great. teaser of where things are headed. Um, so thank you so much, Julie. You've been an inspiration to me. And um, thank you for being here for uh, listeners from my field. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. What a delight it has been to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to what happens next. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for being here. appreciate you. Dear listeners, we hope to make two audio footnote corrections to the information shared in this episode. The first correction is that Minnie Audla Freeman was interviewed for the foreword of her book. The afterword was a different section of the book put together by Dr. Julie Rack, Dr. Kivi Martin, and Dr. Norma Dunning. The second correction is that I misheard Dr. Julie Rack as she shared the story about Minnie learning that she should try to heal. I had misheard that this advice came from a prison worker, but in fact, Minnie was a prison worker herself, and she heard this valuable advice from a prisoner at the time. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag Voicing Creativity Podcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voicing Creativity Podcast was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. The Voicing Creativity podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts, and by research assistant Jordan Berkman. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketsamusic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other Season 1 episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity Podcast. Thank you.